This morning, our focus in the Christmas narrative is the person of Joseph. Joseph is an often overlooked figure in the Christmas story. Uh, He plays uh, extra as opposed to a leading role so often. But uh, perhaps he plays a much more important role than what we might originally imagine. There perhaps is a tendency to downplay Jesus as, excuse me, Joseph as Jesus' father, because we do not want to diminish in any way that Jesus is actually God's son, and he certainly is. And yet, God chose that his son would have an earthly father. And this morning, our focus is on Joseph and his role as a father in the Christmas narrative. As the scene opens, Joseph is in a dilemma. Should he proceed with his marriage to Mary or not? Mary's pregnancy comes as a shock to Joseph, and he doesn't know for sure what to do, how to respond. We begin by looking at the setting. Our text tells us that Mary is betrothed to Joseph in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. So the first thing we want to do is talk about what it means to be betrothed. There's nothing in our culture that directly corresponds to the aspect of a betrothal. It's more than an engagement, for it was legally binding. We can break an engagement with no difficulty whatsoever, but in that particular point in time, a betrothal had a legal bind associated with it. Charles Price, in his commentary on the book of Matthew, is very helpful about talking about three stages that took place in a Jewish marriage. So let me read what he says, and I quote, First there was the engagement, made often when the couple concerned were very young, and usually without any meaningful consent on their part, often arranged by the parents. Following this, there would one day come the betrothal. This was a confirmation of the engagement that involved the consent of both parties. This was a formal arrangement with witnesses on both sides and an agreement about the bride's dowry. If for some reason on meeting each other, one or both of the engaged couple decided they did not wish to go on with the arrangement, it could be broken prior to the betrothal. The betrothal once entered had the legal force of marriage and could only be broken by divorce. It was sealed by the bridegroom paying all or part of the dowry to the bride's parents The couple would be known as husband and wife, but would not live together, and sexual relations would not be expected or permitted. The third stage was, of course, the marriage proper. This would normally take place at the home of the bride's father and be followed by seven days of festivity and the moving of the bride to her husband's home, end quote. So this is this period of a binding relationship that existed between Joseph and Mary. Mary and Joseph are betrothed, but, not, but not, have not had a sexual relationship, tells us in verse 18, before they came together. Mary is now noticeably pregnant. It tells us at the end of verse 13 that she was found to be with child. So she is now showing, if you will. And we're given the explanation for her pregnancy. Mary is pregnant as a result of the power of God. End of verse 18, she was found to be child from the Holy Spirit. Matthew does not give us the birth details that are recorded in Luke, 
regarding the angel's visit to Mary or the announcement to Mary concerning her going to conceive a child. It's much more short and direct. Rather, Matthew just cuts to the chase and tells us what we need to know, that is, Mary's pregnancy is a result of the working of the Holy Spirit. What we now want to consider is Joseph's response to Mary's pregnancy. What is he to do? Well, Joseph is confronted with Mary's pregnancy. It tells us again in verse 18, she was found to be with child. As I said, she is now showing. It's obvious. I believe that Joseph was well aware that she was pregnant before she began to show. I imagine Mary shared all the details of the angel's visit to her. But now it was staring him in in the face. Uh, She was pregnant. But not only was it staring him in the face, but all all his friends, relatives, everyone knew that Mary was pregnant. Joseph is also keenly aware that the child is not his. It says before they came together. Other people may have doubted, but there's no doubt in Joseph's mind. He knows for a certainty. He knows he's had no relationship to Mary. He knows beyond a shadow of a doubt this child does not belong to him. So what is Joseph to do in light of Mary's pregnancy, especially as a godly individual? Joseph decides to end the relationship with Mary. He's going to divorce her, verse 19. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her. Remember, they're considered husband and wife, although they have not yet entered this third stage of marriage, but it would have to be broken by a divorce. What prompted Joseph's decision? Well, Joseph thought it was the right thing to do. It tells us in verse 19, their husband Joseph, being a just man, being a just man, the reason for this desired divorce is because he is a just or, or righteous or godly individual. Joseph was not mean-spirited and was not trying to be vindictive in divorcing Mary. He was not trying to make things hard or difficult for her. For it tells us in verse 19 that he was unwilling to put her to shame. He was not trying to embarrass her. He was not trying to rake her through the coals nor bring up a lot of muck in uh, her life. So Joseph sought to do this divorce as painlessly for Mary as he could. It's found in the words to divorce her privately, not making big fanfare, not making a lot of accusations, but as quietly as painlessly, he was going to divorce her. He wasn't trying to punish Mary. He was not anger, angry towards her. He was not trying to bring reproach against her name. In fact, he was intentionally trying to alleviate as much pain associated with this divorce as possible. But, of course, it would not be possible to enter into a painless divorce. It's one thing for others not to have believed Mary. It's quite another for her betrothed not to have believed her. Raising the child as a single mother would have been difficult, to be sure. And her hopes of marriage would have been diminished. Very unlikely that anyone else would want to marry her after this divorce would have 
taken place. So it's a difficult time in their lives. But God intervenes. The time of the intervention is in verse 20. As he considered these things, the divorce had not yet happened. It had not yet taken place. It was not yet legal, but he had reached a conclusion at this point. Um, God had waited for a period of time to intervene. He put them both through a number of circumstances and difficulties, but at the same time, uh, God intervened uh, before this divorce actually took place. The manner of the intervention is that, behold, an angel Lord appeared to him in a dream, in verse 20. And God addresses Joseph's concerns. He says in verse 20, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. It's an interesting phrase, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. In each of these instances, people are afraid, but they're afraid for different reasons. Joseph's fear is in marrying Mary. One wonders what he might be afraid of. Perhaps his own reputation. Um, certainly, Mary, Joseph, and Jesus are going to take it on the chin, for there will be many, many, many who certainly will not believe uh, the account of uh, the working of the Holy Spirit that this child is born of God. In fact, we find in John chapter 8, verse 41, when Jesus is interacting with the Pharisees, he says to them, you are doing the works of your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, God. That was a direct attack on Jesus. He said, you're of your father, the devil. They said, we weren't born of sexual immorality. That was a, a direct accusation of the relationship between Joseph and Mary. So the reputation was going to be sullied, to be sure. But I think the greatest issue that was in the mind of Joseph, for it's the one that is going to be addressed in the angel's dialogue with Joseph, is that he is a just man, he is a righteous man, he is concerned with honoring God in his marriage, and he is really questioning what is the right thing for me to do, biblically, if you will. As a believer and as a follower of God, what should I do? And we will find that there are many situations in life that we are in a quandary as to how a Christian should respond to a particular difficulty in life, especially moral issues. What is the right stance for us to take? How do we respond? And uh, even in the issues of pregnancies, you know, we might begin to wonder, what is the right thing for us to do as a, as a father, as as uh, an engaged individual. How do we handle this? Well, the angel tells Joseph that the child is a result of the working of the Holy Spirit. End of verse 20. 
For that which conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Mary had not been unfaithful to Joseph. God was behind this and in this. And the angel tells Joseph what he's to do. Joseph's to go through with the marriage to Mary. Tells us in the middle of verse 20, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. The angel says that she will bear a son. And now I want to slow down and begin to unpack a very interesting phrase. Joseph is to be a father to Mary's child. Joseph shall be a father to Mary's child. Verse 21. She will bear a son, and you, Joseph, shall call his name Jesus. Now I'm going to belabor this point. Joseph, being a father to Jesus, is going to be the focal point of the rest of this message. I will acknowledge to you that I have studied and and preached on this passage repeatedly, but up until now I missed a, a very significant aspect, that being the role that Joseph was to play in the life of Jesus, Joseph being the father of Jesus. It is so easy when you read that verse she will bear a son, you shall call his name Jesus, to focus on this last statement, for certainly it is the most significant, and that is, for he will save his people from their sins. And in focusing on that statement, it's easy to neglect what comes before. So this morning I'm going to focus on what comes before, and not particularly the statement, he shall save his people from their sins. It tells us that Joseph is to name that son. Look at verse 21. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. The you is singular. Joseph, you are to name the baby Jesus. Mary will not name the child. Her role is to bear the child. It does not put it in the third person. It doesn't say in a passive sense that the child shall be called Jesus. The emphasis is that Joseph is going to name this child Jesus. So what's the significance of that? Answer, in Jewish culture, it was the role of the father to name the child. Let me say it again. In Jewish culture, it was the role of the father to name the child. So look at with me in a narrative concerning the naming of Zechariah and Elizabeth's son, John. Keep your finger here and turn with me to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. I think many of you know the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth, how she was barren, unable to bear a child, but an angel appeared to Zechariah while he was performing his priestly duties, saying that she was going to bear a son. And the angel told him that that child was to be called John. Starting at Luke chapter 1, verses 57 and 58. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth. Luke 1, 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. Verse 59. And on the eighth day they came, that is, Elizabeth and Zechariah came, to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father. Now, the they there 
has to deal with the people that are performing the circumcision. They would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. Elizabeth knew that the child should be named John, for the angel had told Zechariah that that was what the child's name should be. But Zechariah had been struck by the angel because of Zechariah's doubt, and he could not speak. At his circumcision, it was assumed by those performing the circumcision that the child should be called Zechariah after his father, but Elizabeth said no. Verse 59, no, he shall be called John. Now, the people assume that Zechariah would not have wanted his son to be named John. Since it was the role of the father to name the child, they appeal to Zechariah. Look at verse 61. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father. That's important, not just to Zechariah. They made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him, that is, the child, to be called. This was the father's duty. This was his role. So they said to the father, what do you want the name of this child to be? Verse 63. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they were all wondered, you know, why would this child's name be John? But my point is that that was the fatherly duty and role to name the child. So when the angel says to Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus, he's saying you are to perform this fatherly role. So not only is Joseph to be the Mary, to be the wife, I'll get it right. Not only is Joseph to be the husband of Mary, but he is to be the father to Jesus. The reason for the baby's name Jesus is that God saves, for Jesus will save his people from their sins. Now that deserves a sermon in of itself, but this morning I'm not going there. Instead, I'm continuing on with this aspect of Joseph being the earthly father of Jesus. For there is great significance in all of this. If you look at verse 22, I'm, excuse me, I'm back in Matthew chapter 1. <clears throat> back to Matthew chapter 1, looking at verse 22. And this took place, that's not what it says. Let me go back, verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. There's disagreement among commentators as to who is making this statement. Some, such as D.A. Carson, see this as a continuation of the angel saying to Joseph. Others see this a comment made by Matthew. There's really no way to know for sure, and it doesn't absolutely matter. What matters is what is said. Note the words, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken. All this is referring to 
everything that's associated with the birth of Jesus, including what the angel had just said to Joseph, and that is that he was to take Mary as his wife and that he was to call the child's name Jesus. Not just the pregnancy, but all that had taken place. All these events and circumstances are included in the angels coming to Joseph and telling him to name the baby Jesus. All of that contributes to the prophecy. For notice verse 23. Starting at verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Verse 23, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear his son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is God with us. Now that is a quotation from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. And it throws a, a curve in the narrative, for he had just been told to call the baby's name Jesus. And we get to verse 23, and it says that, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, how do you reconcile those two things? That's no mistake. That's no mistake. And then it tells us in verse 23, for those that were not the Hebrew readers, Emmanuel, which means God with us. God with us. And it tells in verse 23 that it says that they shall call his name Emmanuel. They, the people, not Mary, not Joseph, but the people will call his name Emmanuel, which means God is with us. As we think about the fulfillment of prophecy, the word fulfillment speaks of the completion, the culmination of a prophecy. Verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken. The accomplishment of a prophecy. A prophecy in the scripture is more than a prediction. It is not like a fortune teller that is just giving a specific detail at a specific moment. A prophecy speaks of events and circumstances that have a purpose that will be fulfilled or completed. There is a plan, if you will, that's associated with a prophecy. Uh, a prophecy is pregnant with a whole lot of ideas. There's a lot going on in a prophecy. And so the prophecy is that God is going to be with us in this child. And God being with us means that God is going to be our, on our side. God is going to do a great work. And included in that great work, of course, is salvation. And so, because a part of that work is salvation, you will call his name Jesus, for he, shall be a savior, uh, for he shall save his people from their sins. But God being with them, God was, going to be with Mo, God was going to be with Elizabeth, God was going to be with Joseph, God was going to be with all those who had placed their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. A lot of things are going to happen as a result of the birth of this child from a virgin. You with me? The plan of God is going to come to fruition. The virgin will conceive and bear a son. And all that God intends for that son to do 
He's going to do. God's plan is for a virgin to have a child. But God's plan is much bigger than that. The plan is for God to be with us. As I said, the prophecy uh, to the virgin uh, being uh, having a child includes this aspect of verse 21, you shall call his name Jesus. God's word is being lived out before Joseph's eyes. This virgin is conceiving and he is to call the child's name Jesus. But though the virgin will conceive without a husband, it was never the plan that the virgin would not have a husband. Let me say that again. Though the virgin would conceive without a husband, it was never the plan that the virgin would not have a husband. Joseph is told that he is to marry Mary and to not only be her husband, but a father to the child. You shall call his name Jesus. It's interesting when the New Testament tells us that Mary was a virgin, it also often associates that with her being betrothed. She's a virgin, but yet she is going to have a husband. The plan is huge. The plan is huge. But it's part of the plan that Joseph be the father to Jesus. Well, Joseph does all that he was instructed to do, verse 24. It says that uh, when Joseph awoke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. The specifics. Joseph became the husband to Mary. It says that uh, he took her as his wife. He married her. It was a normal marital relationship. He initially did not have any sexual relationship with her, verse 25, until the child is born. And then after that, the implication is that she had a normal marital relationship to Joseph. And we're told in Mark chapter 6, verse 3, names of Mary's other children, the uh, brothers and sisters to Jesus. Mark chapter 6, verse 3. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James and jo uh, Joseph and Judas and Simon? Uh, so he becomes a husband to Mary. But again, I want to focus on Jesus became the father, uh, excuse me, Joseph became the father to Jesus. As I mentioned earlier, the phrase that he called his name Jesus has great implications more than simply naming the child. It points to the duties that Joseph exercised as a father. Mary is certainly the central figure after Jesus in the birth narrative, but Joseph's part is a lead role as well. He plays an important part in the plan of God. Jesus is God's son, but Joseph is to be the earthly father to God's son, Jesus. So let's... Now consider how that's played out. What, what is Joseph's role? It's a lot more than just naming the child. 
And Joseph does a lot more than simply put bread on the table for the family. Joseph, along with Mary, is intricately involved with the spiritual life of Jesus. They were both ceremonially involved in the process of purification, Luke chapter 2, verse 22. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they, that is Joseph and Mary, brought him, that is Jesus, to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Luke 2, 27. And he came in the spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law. So Joseph and Mary did all that the law required concerning the purification of both Mary and of Jesus. Joseph, at that point, is said to be Jesus' father, Luke 2.33. And his father and his mother marveled at what was about said about him. Luke 2.39. And when they, Mary and Joseph, had performed everything, According to the law of the Lord, they, Mary and Joseph, returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. Then we have the narrative of the family attending the religious feast in Jerusalem when Jesus was 12 years old. In Luke chapter 2, verse 41, it says, Now his parents, Jesus' parents, that's of course Joseph and Mary, went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. It's important to keep in mind that Joseph does not remain at home and Mary goes to the feast to celebrate the Passover and he stays back playing video games. No, nor does he stay at home because he's a carpenter and he's got work to do. No, he goes to the feast, he goes to the festival and it tells us that that was what was done every year. He was a godly man. He was a godly man. When Mary and Joseph were at the feast, you might remember the story that Jesus stays behind after they leave. And they both become frantic when they realize that Jesus isn't with them. And so they go back looking for him and they find Jesus in the temple. And in Luke chapter 2, verse 48, it says, and when his parents saw him, They were astonished, and his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I, not just Mary, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Joseph was every bit as distressed over the child's disappearance as Mary was. Joseph was intricately involved. Joseph cared about Jesus. He was a father to Jesus. And after this circumstance in the temple, they go back home, Mary, Joseph, and Jesus, and we read these words in Luke chapter 2, verse 51, and he, that's Jesus, went down with them, that's Mary and Joseph, and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. Them. Not just Mary, 
he was submissive to Mary and Joseph. Joseph was the father to Jesus. And in that fatherly role and duty, what is paramount is the spiritual care and oversight that he was to give to the family. Now, let me make some applications here in conclusion. First, God does all things well. God did not overlook anything in the sending of the Son. So too, there are no details or circumstances that escape God's knowledge or governance. God in his goodness meets the needs of Mary, meets the needs of Joseph, meets the needs of Jesus, and meets our needs as well. God sent his son to save a people, and those people are going to be saved. God is with us. But what I really want to emphasize this morning is God provides an earthly father for Jesus. We learn that a father figure is important when rearing a child. We learn that a father does not have to be the biological father to play an important role as a child's father. Let me say that again. We learn that a father does not have to be a biological father to play an important role as a father in a child's life. A father can be a stepfather. A father can be a father through adoption. In fact, we learn much about adoption in the whole Christmas narrative. Adoption reflects the redemptive work of God, Galatians 4, 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those that were under the law so that we might receive the adoption as sons. The great message of the gospel is that God has a relationship to us. We have a relationship to him. He is our father. We are his son through the adoptive work of the Holy Spirit in bringing us into a saving relationship to him. We become a part of his family. The scripture says we're heirs and joint heirs with Christ. But the standing is a different standing. Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. And yet, our standing is equal with him through adoption. God chooses to make us a part of his family and bless us with everything that's associated in that family, giving us the standing of Jesus Christ. But not only does adoption reflect the redemptive work of God, but it's in keeping with the redemptive work of God. For God is turning the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers. One great motivation for adopting a child should be to provide a, a child a godly home. Adoptive parents who are believers can play an incredible, significant role in a child's life, keeping them, guarding them, blessing them, and telling them 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the greatest takeaway in all of this is that fathers have a tremendous God-given role to play as spiritual leaders to their children. There are too many in our society that think a father is not an important part of the family. I read a book this week, hot off the presses. It was written in 2022, entitled Of Boys and Men, written by Richard Reeves. Uh, It's been in the news, and uh, he's been interviewed on a couple of TV shows just out. Of Boys and Men. There's no reason to think that Richard Reeves is a, a Christian, and in the book, he makes no mention of God or Christianity. It certainly is not based on Judeo-Christian faith. He does research for the Brookings Institute in the area of gender studies. And in this book, he states that the traditional role in the family is for the mother to be the caregiver and the father to be the breadwinner. He states that increasingly women are becoming more financially independent and the role of the husband as father as breadwinner is being greatly diminished. He's saying that uh, it's possible now in our society because of the advancements of pay, etc., for women to gain an independence in which they are not as financially dependent upon the husband as once were. And you can now have a a family, uh, you can have a mother and daughter, and uh, they can make it without the father being a breadwinner or a father being present. He writes... And I quote, in this chapter, I argue that the role of mothers has been expanded to include breadwinning as well as caring, but the role of fathers has not been expanded to include caring as well as breadwinning. He says that in our society, the role of the father as breadwinner isn't that important any longer. And then he goes on to say, and I further quote, This is resulting in a dad deficit with men increasingly unable to fulfill the traditional breadwinner role but yet to step into a new one, end quote. He is saying that in society the role of the father as breadwinner isn't as important anymore. Therefore, fathers aren't important. They are not needed, for the role of the father is to be a breadwinner. Well, he's arguing that there is more to it than that. And this morning, I am going further than what anything that he says, and that is that the primary role of the father is much more than being a breadwinner. The primary role of a father is to be the spiritual leader in the home. The primary responsibility for a father is to see that his children are brought up in the faith, are brought to the house of God, 
who are instructed in the word of God, who are going to fulfill God's purpose and God's plan for their life. It is absolutely essential, men, that we be good, godly fathers to our children. Whether we are biological fathers, whether we are stepfathers, whether we are adoptive fathers, that is our role. And let me say that it's not good enough to stay home and send your family off to church and take comfort because you are providing for them. You are making the money. You are giving them what they have need of. If you are not giving them spiritual direction and help, you are not giving your family what they have need of. You are not providing in the most important aspect of life. We can all be spiritual fathers to our children. As I said, biological, step, or adopted. All of us can be spiritual fathers. It's noteworthy that Joseph was not a priest. John the Baptist's father was a priest, Zechariah. Joseph is a carpenter, but he was a godly carpenter. You don't have to be a pastor, but you need to be godly. Obviously, mothers are important as well. I'm not trying to diminish their role. We certainly see that truth displayed in Mary, the mother of Jesus. But the point is, it's not an either-or, but a both-and for parents to be spiritual helps to their children. God intends it to be mother and father in rearing their children. The great takeaway this morning is this. God saw to it that his son had a godly earthly father. God the Father understood the importance and necessity of an earthly father for a child born to a virgin. Let's pray. Almighty God, I pray that you would help us this morning to be godly fathers, that we would desire to be obedient to the role that you have created for us, to be more than just breadwinners, to be men who are going to fulfill their godly responsibilities of bringing their children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Help us all. Help us all. Lord, again, we, we thank you that Jesus was born to save his people from their sins. We understand that's the centrality, and we cannot lose sight of that great fact. And yet, in the great sovereignty of God, in the great sphere of that plan, you were bringing salvation to Mary, to Joseph, to 
myriads of, of people. And you were showing us what it means to be delivered from our sins. Lord, thank you that you endured through the Lord Jesus Christ, turned the hearts of the fathers to the sons and the fathers and the sons to the fathers. Oh Lord, this day, this Christmas, may our families be whole. May mothers and fathers love their children and may children love their fathers and their mothers. May it bring glory to you and enrichment to the family and a blessing to this world. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.